Hello, my name is Katherine Moore, social worker, mom, coffee lover, and founder of Social Workers Rise, where we inspire social workers to connect, expand their knowledge, and change more lives than they ever thought possible. I'm so excited you found my podcast. We will talk everything social work on every level from micro to macro. We will hear the stories of social workers who are doing big things, learn new skills, and most importantly, give you actionable steps to make a difference today. Let's go. Hello, Shantia. Thank you so much for being with me. Are you there? I'm here. Awesome. So we are recording actually across the country. I am in California. You are in Maryland. So for those of you listening, I apologize in advance if, if the sound quality isn't as great <laughs> as, as what Shantia deserves. But, um, you know, we're social workers. I'm not a tech person, so I'm doing my best. <laughs> So, so thank you so much for being on with me, Shantia. Can you just um, tell me a little bit about your story, where you came from, and, and kind of how you got into social work? Thank you for inviting me um, on this call, and I'm excited to share my story with you. So I started social work first as a family science student at the University of Maryland on College Park. Now, family sciences is technically social work, but there's a lot of applications that are quite similar at the mental level. Okay, like what? Like working with families, understanding family law, as well as looking at different family theories that are applicable to this family system, like ABC um, X model, etc. But what's great about the opportunity at the University of Maryland is I realized that I really have a special interest working with families of color, particularly families from low-income communities um, within my within my um, within my neighborhood in Shortage County. And so, um, after graduating from the University of Maryland College Park, I decided to go into a master's program at Oklahoma State to continue my pursuit in understanding families. So I obtained a master's in human development and family science. And then thereafter, after being in the workforce and realizing that, hmm, my fields are actually very unique. So throughout my tenure at University of Maryland, Oklahoma State, I was a part of a entrepreneurship program that gave me a lot of business to add to my toolkit, but then I, I was always looking for, okay, what is my perfect, where's my niche in this workforce? Because I have the interest working with families, and then I have this very unique opportunity, I have this very unique opportunity to work with entrepreneurs, with nonprofits, as well as with um, the university setting, well, within the university setting. So I went back to school and wanted to pursue social work because I felt like with social work, I can actually use all two, I can use both skills that I've learned throughout my college career. So originally I wanted, I pursued micro social work um, and then thereafter because of um, my 
involvement with a lot of nonprofits, nonprofits in the social work community uh, or social work organizations, um, like the Greater Washington Society of Clinical Social Work, as well as the Congressional Research Institute of Social Work and Policy, I decided to go to University of Maryland and pursue a um, continue my master's program um, focused on macro social work. Um, where I also received a concentration in nonprofit management. So throughout my experience in social work education, it had really shaped my um, pursuit as well as drive to start this nonprofit called Why Social Work. So when I first organized social work, advocacy, Student Social Advocacy Day, um, in partnership with the Society, as well as Chris, I wanted there to be, I wanted it to reflect my interest in social work, which was very um, journalist, it was both macro and it was both micro. And so what it allowed me to do is create a hashtag called Why Social Work so that all students can learn about the social work reinvestment act. And so in order to tell the story, why the Social Work Reinvestment Act is important to our society, it was important to tell the, to share the narrative why social is important and everyone has their own personal story, why they have chosen this, this field as their, as their calling. So that's a short, um, very short, <laughs> brief explanation of why I've chosen Social Work on an um, academic level and then also how why social work got started um, from a nonprofit level. <laughs> so, what is your story? Like, how is um, it? Sorry, let me rephrase the question. I think it's fascinating that you have come at social work in so many different like aspects or point of views as far as the children and family services, the macro, the academics. And you've even pursued entrepreneurship, which is not (laughs) traditionally seen or encouraged or talked about within the field of social work. So I'm wondering, you know, specifically with that, are there skills that social workers have that we either are just naturally good at or that we've learned in our master's program that overlap into the entrepreneurial field and are a strength for us that we may not necessarily realize? I I agree with you 100%. So uh, I'll start off with my experience in social education programs and then how a lot of it overlays with social work. I'm sorry, entrepreneurship education programs and how they, there's overlay with social work education programs. So throughout my experience at um, Prince George Community College and University of Maryland College Park, because the program actually allowed students to matriculate from the community college to the four-year institution, and it was a full scholarship, so it was a really good advantage for students who wanted to give back, who wanted to learn how to be entrepreneurs, and also those who wanted to go to college um, for a little to no um, cost. So... When I first started this program, one of the first courses I had to take was a leadership course. I said, oh my gosh, I think everyone has the innate ability to be a leader. But I didn't realize that not every profession actually promotes leadership. Mm. <laughs> and yes, not every, so no, I don't, I really don't think that exists and I'll explain later. So, um, so from leadership, from the leadership course, 
um, where we learned a lot about our own innate capabilities. And we really, looking at it from a social perspective, we had an opportunity to look at ourselves and some of the person environment perspective because you have to be self-aware of who you are and have a strong sense of identity in order for you to be able to grow yourself throughout this program to be this this entrepreneur, this leader, the entrepreneur in the, in, a, in, a, in the nonprofit space, mm. or a community leader. But the program specifically spoke to entrepreneurship, although they kind of couched the entrepreneurial aspect within their program. So from there, from the from the community college, I transferred to University of Maryland College Park, and the courses that were taken there were on uh, non, um, business. Uh, there was there were two classes. One class, actually three classes. How to fund your excuse me. How to fund your business. So we were taught by venture capitalists, which is very unique for a family science major. <laughs> to be in a room full of accountants and um, finance majors and engineers who pretty much had a straight, narrow view vision view of what they wanted to do within their vision. So. Um, Another course was business plan writing, and then the last course we took was um, on marketing. Um, mm-hmm. So we took three courses in total throughout University of Maryland. Interestingly enough, um, and I may have, I'm thinking of one other course, I just can't remember the name right now, but they were all about how do you hone into these business skills since you now have an understanding of who you are, how do you walk in your purpose um, by understanding the mechanics and that's both focus of plain writing. So, from so through that experience, I actually um, wrote a business, a team and I wrote a business plan around creating a daycare center on the campus. So we saw there was a need that there was no childcare facilities um, at University of Maryland College Park for early childhood education. So I worked closely with the chair of the family science department to. Um, um, to draft a survey and send it out to graduate students who had children or were bearing children in order for them to prepare themselves for, um, you know, for this, you know, this new child care center that could have been um, designed on campus if we actually won the business buying competition, which was about dollars so we didn't win. We were finalists for the business plan competition at University of which is a big thing because we competed with a solar decathlon. So to, wow. to see our team that was a you know focused on you know child welfare in a way, you know child services, mm-hmm. compete with a solar decathlon group. I think that was pretty pretty exceptional work. So from there, um, when I went to university, so when I graduated from University of Maryland. Um, uh, I'm sorry, University of Maryland College Park. I went straight into my master's program at Oklahoma State University. So from there, I, I actually got a, a lot of skills um, in Oklahoma. I mentored the first entrepreneurship magnet high school, and then I also um, consulted Native Americans through their um, consulting student consulting group, and then I also um, traveled to South Africa with their ESA program, Entrepreneurship Empowerment in South Africa program, where we consulted disadvantaged black-owned businesses 
who were a part of the procurement process and um, with the Cape Town government, which was pretty cool. Yeah. And then yes. from there, yeah, and then we, we did one other thing with them. I was a part of the Creativity and Innovation Scholars Program, which is a one-year fellowship for graduate students across campus to learn, continue to learn entrepreneurial techniques. So in that program, we learned how to co- commercialize the technology. So within the engineering department, there were individuals who patented different technologies, and we were broken up into different groups, and we had to write a business plan around that technology, and again, compete within the business plan competition. So with so with all these experience, I would say the overlay with social education, macro social work, is primarily the digital marketing piece, understanding your market, um, because a lot of what social work is teaching is understanding people, and the business community actually has recognized that and now has moved away from business plan writing and more to business plan modeling, which uses a lot of go-to-market strategies. So I think that social workers actually have an advantage in understanding markets because we're so personal environment focused. So if anyone were to have or to implement um, programs um, that so I think so implement a program that ultimately has large scale possibilities, then I think conversate a social worker who's very business minded would be perfect at that. So I think there is some overlay. I also see it in um, storytelling. I think social workers tell the best story because we tell, we advocate for our clients. Yes. And oftentimes digital marketing is all centered around storytelling and how to really articulate the needs of the community and also the, the issues in society because the issues in society reflect the needs of the community. So I think the social workers are also best suited for that. And then lastly, I think there's the organizing aspect. So I think the social workers are great organizers and I think that's a huge advantage to corporate America because that's how you bring the people to your business. Um, and, and it goes also back to marketing because that it's, it's not about a cause, it's not about different individual when you think of candidacy it's about a business and I think you know we don't really talk about you know we talk a lot about politics in our profession but how do we use those skills those same skills that we're now pushing advocacy as relates um, to you know campaigns and so you know social social justice efforts um, to actual you know social social entrepreneurship efforts as well um, because I think nonprofits are great, but there's a new push toward B Corps that I think is is ultimately going to be the marriage between um, large scale nonprofit development and you know some of these like smaller you know small business um, development um, approaches as well. Right. So I think social workers have a place in business innovation, and I know there's a few programs that see the overlay. Um, like University of Southern California, Washington University of St. Louis, um, have some phenomenal programs. And I'm just not to negate not any program out there that offers social educational program. I just don't know, know them off the top of my head. But I'm sure there's other programs out there too, but they're just so far few in between. Sure, definitely. And I've definitely noticed the same changes going on within the business world and the finance world and marketing where they're saying, you know, we don't necessarily want to, people don't want to be pushed and hear about sales. They want connection. And that's really where 
they're trying to go and now people are really trying they recognize that in this day of technology how we're so isolated that people crave connection and you know you can use it for good or bad <laughs> to make money but um, it's definitely coming into the conversation with businesses and and finance and all of those people um, I think it's a catch-22 because, you know, brand loyalty is so closely related to marketing. I mean, it's under the umbrella of marketing. Mm -hmm. And because people realize that the human experience is building relationships, I mean, you can't, I mean, if, if Eric Erickson said the foundation of humanity through infancy is trust, then we live our lives based on how we trust. That's how relationships are based on our ability to trust. And then from there, ability to love. And so what the business community is doing um, very, um, very strategically is, is really bringing brand loyalty in the front, forefront of people's minds as it relates to purchasing and buying power. So if they know that, you know, I'm loyal to, if the customer is loyal to um, a particular brand like Starbucks, then it creates a monopoly within the market or in that in particular industry, because then they don't, they don't really don't want to go outside of who they know. Mm -hmm. And so, and that goes back to trust. So if you gain the trust of the people or your consumer base, then, you know, it, it only increases your, your market value, um, i.e. your profit market. So, um, so it's, it's, you know, I see why for, I mean, a lot of business is profit driven. So it's, you know, nothing, nothing is done. <laughs> nothing is done without there being some, some level of, you know, profit generation. I mean, that's, that's the bottom line. Mm -hmm. <laughs> no pun, <laughs> no pun on the word, but that is definitely the bottom line of, of big businesses. So in the society that we live now, it, it, you know, especially with this, um, battle between capitalism and, 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 you know, social good, you know, it's a, it's a, um, it's a, it's actually a, a war on big businesses and small businesses, right? It's a war on people versus corporations. I mean, no matter how we use euphemisms to explain it, right, it's still the same thing. And so, I mean, we, we really are, and I don't, want to, I don't want to move into another conversation. I hope we can save this conversation for a later date. But I definitely see with all that's going on today, that is why, why social work is being really active in how do we use micro practice in a different way so that that way we can teach it earlier to students so that they can see the value of why of, of social work. Mm -hmm. even before declaring their major. So why Social Work has done a lot of research, a literature review on articles written within Social Work Education Journals, within Social Work Journals, within um, Macro Social Work Journals, just to see what is the onset of, when is the onset of decision-making for Social Work students? Is it before they get into high school? Is it during high school? Is it after high school? Is it in college? Is it midway through college? Their junior year? Or is it, you know, when is it, right? So 
I'm realizing that social work is actually an ad hoc major. Um, people choose social work because they really can't compete. They really don't, they, they can't, either one, they can't continue the track that they're going for whatever reason, but it's a major that people just go through college with and realize, oh, I like this. Or, oh, this is, this is related to criminal justice. Or, oh, there's intersectionality with feminism. Or, oh, there's or U.S. Yes. women's studies. Or, oh, there's intersection with entrepreneurship. Okay, sorry about that. We had an interruption. Go ahead, Chantia. Oh, no worries. So I was just saying that why social work um, will target high school and community college students in developing um, pathways and recruitment strategies from high school to community college to a four-year institution. So oftentimes, well, recently there's been a lot of research on the 2 plus 2 program equals BSW. And what we're trying to do is create other other pathways into social work that advertises the interdisciplinary nature of social work that isn't necessarily, um, um, is it really told on a larger scale? Yeah, so let, so me, let me take a step we're, we're back. We're excited about that. Let me take a step back. Can you tell us, like, what what is why social work? Tell us about why social work. Okay. So why social work has evolved <laughs> over the last year. So, again, social work, why social work was first conceptualized in 2015 as a hashtag, of all things, a hashtag. And um, with the help of the Great Washington Society of Clinical Social Work, Chris, and our media partner at the time, the social work helper, we were able to um, create this large-scale um, nationwide um, advocacy campaign around the Dorothy Height with the Whitney Young Social Work Investment Act because at the time it had just passed, no, it had just, it was just introduced for the fifth time on Capitol Hill and in hopes of re- um, hopes of enactment um, after its you know fifth go round, oh, who first um, by former Congressman Adrian Towns. At the time, Congressman Congresswoman um, Barbara Lee had introduced the bill and was in the process of really aggressively trying to seek sponsors for the bill, and we wanted to create this large scale um, social media as well as an event campaign around the Social Work Reinvestment Act so that that way there was more visibility prior to the, the on, on-site campaign on Capitol Hill um, and even post-campaign efforts um, by keeping the wise social work brand going even after that event. So fast forward, fast forward five years later, um, the bill still hasn't been reenacted. There's still one percent chance, um, which is, I mean, direly low. And you know, there's more that we should do, and I think there there need to there needs to be more that's done. And so, why so short has evolved to consider um, the um, the the reconceptualization of the 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 social social work reinvestment act it just needs to be overhauled. it there needs to, i mean and that's, there's lots of efforts right now there there's a there is 
efforts going on through NASW and other social organizations, and it's not discrediting those efforts, but I have a very, um, I have a, a very straight and narrow idea that there needs to be a, an, an incubator within our profession that actually implements programs that sees programs through and replicates those programs outside of the university. Granted, there are there are you know organizations through. There's a lot of organizations within our social profession as as of today, but none of those organizations actually look at programmatic um, the program the how programs be implemented and used as a baseline for consideration when when pushing bills like the Social Reinvestment Act. And so, why social work is an incubator. Um, and we're focusing primarily on the first provision, which is education, and um, education, which really pushes um, um, further recruitment and retention strategies for social work education programs. And so, our biggest push right now is we've we've created a wide social work experience for high school and community college students that really promote again the recruitment and retention of of these populations into social work education programs and, and while considering the two plus two equals BSW. So there's a lot of different um, articles we've pulled, a lot of, I mean, we have a whole literature review that we have completely synthesized into one document that serves as a baseline for how do we really how do we really incentivize social work and create that interdisciplinary community um, so that more people are aware of social work are aware that there are different tracks to social work education and that there's ways in which they can practice social work in interdisciplinary settings without thinking that they have to be clinicians. And I think that's a, a, a very hairy audacious job of why social work, um, because there's so many conversations that are had, um, even with us not being at the table, and there's so many conversations that are that are taking place in settings that we may not even know of. But you know, at this point, quite frankly, our job is to not seek permission; it is to just do the job. Um, and that's what we're that's what we're doing. That's amazing. Yeah, I was kind of wondering, you know, how discouraging that the Social Work Reinvestment Act was presented five different times, and like you said, by now it's kind of outdated and needs revision. And you know, I'm kind of wondering, especially given the current political climate, there's I can see why it's a one percent chance. <laughs> of it um, actually <laughs> passing with the, you know, with our current administration. They just don't appreciate, you know, the work that we do. Um, but that's a whole different topic. But I'm just kind of wondering, you know, what if what if social workers are the ones who need to just be taking up these projects instead of asking and relying on the government to help support us? You know, what if what if there's some way, and I don't know, maybe I, 
I don't have the business background to really know what it is, but I know that we have the solutions. We're on the front lines. We have the skills. We know what needs to be done. You know, it's just how do we how do we fund these things? Right, and and that's honestly where I feel we we do a great job seeking permission. Um, and that's what differentiates us from the entrepreneurship community. And I know that sounds pretty negative, but it's the reality. I, you know, I know people who just had an idea and said, you know what, I want to do this. I, want, I have an idea. I'm a vision. I want to do it. I'm going to do it. And I find in the social community, um, and even within my, even within my discourse with a lot of people and that I've worked with, and it's not to discredit any any one of them, but there's just a lot of permissions that need to take place in order for there to be action. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you have to have all these credentials, you have to have all, you know, you have to have all these, all, all like, years of experience, and it's like, no, no, I don't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't. And, and, and it's not that I don't, I have. And I, you know, it's, it's, there's a conversation that I think in social work we need to have around breaking the glass ceiling, even in our profession. Yeah. And that glass ceiling is strong. And that glass ceiling says that you have to have a PhD, you have to write articles, you have to be a tenured professor, you have to um, have 10 years of experience. And in order for you to sit at the table with me, you have to have all these checks. Mm-hmm. In these boxes. I don't even think and, it's a and, glass ceiling. Okay. I feel like we're in a glass box. Like all around us, we get these these messages, whether they're intentional or not. But it's just exactly. almost seems like the culture of social work is like just sit in your box, go find a government job, or you can you know you can do that until you get your license, and you can have a private therapy. Well, I mean, yeah. I don't want to. let the government tell you what to do. <laughs> I don't want to do any of that, but I love social work. Exactly. And honestly, and and that's exactly why I wanted to put a pin on um, what I said about the differences between the the two. This is a perfect example of why the business community thrives and why we as social workers, we don't. We need to start fundraising differently. We need to start marketing differently or there's brand loyalty in our profession. And even outside of, even, even like, we, we say this like it's a, it's, a, it's a badge of honor when we say, you know, social workers are known for taking children away from their parents. I might be saying it wrong. I don't really quote scripture, so I probably won't be able to quote this either. But um, we say that like it, you know, this is something that we we do. And, you know, people say it like it's, it's like what we say. And the reality is, okay, we, since we know that to be true, so what are we doing about it? What are we, what are we doing to track their success over a long period of time? What are we doing after these kids are taken from their, from their, from as a profession? What are we doing to take these kids from, you know, abusive or neglectful situation? Because there's a reason why they're taken, right? Mm-hmm. Doesn't negate that. Mm-hmm. But what do we do after? How do we encourage innovation even after? And I know that And there, why do we... Mm-hmm. I know that and there why are, do we seek permission? Yeah, there's like so much work that goes on behind the scenes 
that's confidential, but it's true. If someone's like, oh, yeah, you're a child snatcher, well, they don't work. I don't know that we work strong enough or are assertive enough in telling and educating people, like, no, this person or this child had all of these issues. Well, you can't really even say that because it's all confidential, but, you know, it's like there was issues going on, they weren't safe, and I did this, this, and that to to fix it and to guide the families and to, you know, with the ultimate goal of family reunification. Um, and, the, you know, I just wonder, though, you know, because that's not... That's not exciting. That's not sexy. That's not drama. The drama is, oh, they took my child away and they're the bad people. So, right. yeah, so many things. <laughs> no, it is. And it's, it's I, you know, and I think what makes, I think it's going to get harder. Because as we professionalize social work and we create all these standards, competencies, they're great. But to what extent are we teaching to the test, right? So just like we t- every, and I think everyone will say who has children, they want more creative, more involved, and you know, uh, experiential learning opportunities for their child. And but yet in the profession, we're doing the same thing that we say we don't want in the education field. Right? Like, we are really standardizing our, our, our curriculum. And, and granted, everyone's teaching the same thing. Everyone's doing the same thing. And, you know, I, I don't, I'm, I'm indifferent about that. But one of the things that I, because I see the value in using a lot of the resources that are provided um, to make sure that people are um, competent social workers in the field. Now, I get it. You know, that's great. But what are we doing to actually bring them into the field and diversify the field? I think there's, 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 a, high, there's a large number of, of, of black females who have joined the field over the last past decade. Right? I, but we, there's, and there's a, there's a growth in Latino social workers, but we have completely lost track of, of seeing value in males in our pro, in our profession as well. Mm. And so we, you know, it's, it's, we haven't done, and there's reasons for that, right? Criminal justice system is one. Now, specifically among black males, if we have a system, and this, this is, and I'm, I'm not trying to profile or, or exclude anyone, but any other groups, but just for this group in particular, if you have a, a, a high concentration of incarcerated folks in one community, i.e. Baltimore City, right, or within the state of Brown, that has a very high reentry rate. Now, when they come back to society, and there's a lot of institutions around Baltimore community that are graduating social work students who are predominantly white females. How are those services? How how do we ensure that those services are actually equitable? Yeah. So, and in the same case for Washington D.C., every urban community and deals with its urban issues as it relates to social work, and it, it all goes around sometimes around the black and brown experience. And so we don't do a, a job. We don't 
because black females don't really understand the experience of a black male, but the black male or Latino male. But yet we, we see their incarceration rates. We see them. Mm-hmm. But we do nothing to provide, we, we, to diversify our profession, to intentionally attract them into our field. Instead, what happens is we continue to create red tape so they can't. Mm-hmm. We continue to create red tape. You know, with, with and I'm not saying that the licensure part, I mean, I'm sure there's leniency. I'm sure there's, you know, there's, you know, there's ways in which, you know, some social services have gone around to recruit them for whatever purpose, but they don't serve as a social worker on paper. But some of them would love to be a social worker. Some of them still call themselves a social worker, but they don't have the credentials to really honor the name of a social worker. And there's some states that are protecting the name of a social of a social worker. But what are we doing to ensure that these people actually become a social worker? They're not just a life coach. or a, you know, whatever, you know, every, every decade or two, there's always another, another, um, title that's added around mental health. But how do, I I think, I don't know if I'm articulating my point well, because I get really passionate about this a lot. It just, it's, it's disheartening. One of the questions you asked me, um, around earlier around, you know, what is your why social work story? I gave you a very um, superficial answer, but my so why social story started um, also because my senior year at the University of Maryland, um, my mom died of a drug overdose in Washington, D.C. And before that, she was incarcerated for um, drug use for over 10, much of my childhood and adolescence. And so, um, luckily, I was raised by a grandparent who was um, employed by the U.S. State Department. He was, you know, well-traveled, was able to go to different countries. By my, by the age of five, she was, had already traveled to Kenya, Rwanda, South Africa, Sudan, and United Kingdom. And so, that was really her saving grace for taking on the guardianship of two young grandchildren. And throughout our lives, she ensured that we had all the services and resources necessary to be successful, healthy young adults that were transforming into adults. And so, um, when my mom, before my mom died, um, I changed my major um, because my grandmother really wanted me to not necessarily focus on mental health, but really focus on being a linguist so that I could continue um, her past in the U.S. State Department. Mm. But I knew then that um, there, was a, there was a calling, of, there was a, a voice in my spirit that really pushed me to become a family scientist or a family science major because I don't, I don't know how to explain it, but I, my actions tell me that um, I knew, I, I knew that there, there was, there was something else. And so, um, I worked with a gentleman who, um, I felt a mentor who I felt could potentially give me some of the answers that I wanted. And he became my mentor through the McNair program. And I was really hoping that those answers he gave me could really help push, because he was also the director of the marriage and family therapy program at University of College Park. And I was really hoping that through our advisement sessions 
he could really help me through understanding um, how to even provide the you know family psychosocial education that was necessary in order not just for individual healing with my mother, but also family healing with with my siblings, my grandmother, and and, and also my uncle, uncle and aunt. But it, it was it was I didn't even get that chance, and so um, I feel as though. From um, reading the Social Work Reinvestment Act while I was a MSW, through my early years within um, my MSW program at the time, I wanted to share with others the importance of the Social Reinvestment Act because my, my mom, she, when she was discharged from the, um, from the hospital that she was in, she was in a hospital under the um, criminal unit. And she, um, she, um, she was released um, without my family's knowing, and she went into a, a home that ultimately put her back into the streets because of inadequate service. Oh, and no. so um, she overdosed when she got, I mean, it's, it's like placing someone out of recovery and then putting them back in the same community oh. that they that they used in mm-hmm. and it's just it's it was poor discharge planning it was poor it was absolute poor discharge planning and for four months i said you know what? i'm not becoming social workers social workers don't even know what they're doing i really believe that i, I really believe i had a vendetta with social work and um and i'm pretty sure there are probably others that might feel what i feel mm-hmm. but i feel like it's my, I wouldn't say my responsibility. I feel like that might be a counter-transparent, but I do feel like there, there's, there's a, there is, this is my why social work story. And in order for us to create more competent social workers who may want to be a social work, but they are burnt out, there's other things you can do. Mm-hmm. Because people don't realize that when you're burned out, you make poor decisions, and those decisions are life changing. That might it might not be for you directly, but you are directly changing the lives of other people. Yes, and it's life and death. Yes, and there are casualties on the other side of your decision making, like myself. And so I feel like we don't really teach that the life or death, and then the casualties behind it. And so I chose social work, and I choose why social work, because at the end of the day, there needs to be ways in which we advance the profession to include those that are, um, and who are, um, who are invested mm-hmm. in ensuring that this profession moves forward, moves forward in the right direction, and they're no longer institution using the same institutional, um, rhetoric that ultimately our society uses to continue to discriminate and to exclude people of color from the same opportunities that the majority has within our society. Yeah. Wow. That's powerful on so many levels. So thank you so much for being vulnerable and for sharing your story. I feel like once we start being honest with each other and like let's just get real we all have we all have our stories that led us here a lot of it is very personal and with that you know that 
they say, I think you you were the one that might have said, I heard it somewhere, um, that that joy shared is doubled and grief shared is halved. And so, you know, the more that we can share these stories, the more that we can just feel supported and heal and move on and be able to just help help the people that we are here to help, you know. So I, I just... I wanna- uh-huh. Mm-hmm. I, no, I wanted to share some statistics with you um, that we've gathered through Why So Short as it relates to um, um, adverse childhood experiences. Mm-hmm. There are a number of incoming social work students, first generation primarily, who are entering the profession to heal. And heal from more than one um, adverse childhood experiences, in fact. And what happens is um, we don't really equip them with the necessary skills because our we don't really... The only way we focus on these, these um, a, a, um, ACEs are if they're in historical black colleges and universities. But PWI do not focus on the level of care that's, necess- that's needed for students who have an interest in working in social work or becoming a social worker because they are touched by the effects of a social worker in a positive or negative way or in a different way for that matter. But they, they've chosen the profession because it's something within their, their childhood experiences that has directed them in this path. And we have to honor that. For whatever reason, we still have to honor that. And what, what we found in the body of literature that's out there today regarding the reason why I've chosen, um, students have chosen so short are as followed. There are, um, I want to read the following. It says, I'm sorry, one second, I'm pulling it up for what I got. Um, it says that, um, Okay, it says here. It says that most mass, so most MSW students with high adverse childhood experiences um, scores um, for instance were found to use maladaptive coping methods to deal with ACEs while trans while transitioning from adolescence to adulthood. Um, if the trauma goes unnoticed for years, um, it was found that there's heightened sense tighten stress responses, which can impact their ability to regulate emotions, can lead to um, sleep difficulties, among a host of physical problems. And oftentimes, what we find is that they are also using social work education to heal. Mm-hmm. To heal at the divorce, heal um, you know, um, parents who have substance use, to, to, to heal from um, just any, you're familiar with ACEs, there's, there's at least seven of them, yes. seven or more. And so there, there's different reasons why adolescents um, choose so trick. And it also mentions, mentions from another article that, um, it also mentions that, excuse me, I'm sorry, I'm pulling up the section that it's in. Um, here it is. If the average student became aware of social work at the age of 17, first considered social work as possible career at the age of 20, 
and ultimately chose social work as a career at the age of 21 years. So intuitive, it makes sense for early exposure to social work education and that's because it could have a positive impact on teenagers. So if we evolve with them regularly by developing programs within high schools and possibly community college with a special emphasis on freshmen and sophomores, then maybe we can actually get to increasing our, our uh, addressing our social work shortages, mm-hmm. particularly in rural areas. But it, but it requires. I agree. It requires a policy change. But if we don't have programs, standardized programs, not curriculum, programs that addresses so that addresses this recruitment effort, and not even just on the at the university level in academia, this is going to take grassroots organizing. And I think there needs to be an incubator within our profession that does that, and that's where why social work comes to play. And so, and it has to, and it's not just something that is done. This is not an issue that is that is central to the United States. We're working with partners in South Africa. We're working with one university that um, um, that has this the same recruitment issue. And upon my conversation, and after my conversation with the um, first-year experience coordinator within the social work department at the school, the same issues are parallel. The similitude is stark. We need to address recruitment issues because at the end of the day, we are, we are, our mental health, the promotion of mental health is, is, is rising. We're not doing a sufficient job with addressing our workforce issues. It's true. And, and we can't put a band. Mm-hmm. I would say retention, too. Retention of social workers. Exactly. And, and, and here's the thing. If, if we strengthen our macro social work practice, then perhaps people can still label themselves as a social worker, but recognize it's, it's, not, it's, it's not just a micro profession, but there needs to be equal licensing, equal recognition, Within the macro practice, just as it is, and I and, and I'm, it's not negating the work that's done right now. There's a lot of work that's being, being done, and the scholars are doing who are doing it are doing exceptional jobs mm-hmm. in its infancy. But there needs to be an aggressive approach that's that again on the ground that addresses the the incubation of ideas mm-hmm. into full implementation, so that that way there is there is opportunities for replication. If we do not do that, and and it goes back to academia, it cannot be all done in academia. Mm -hmm. We do that too much. We we rely on academia to do everything. We, we, you know, academia has to write articles that goes to, that, you know, that we, that we use to advocate for, for particular bills. And then we ask for permission of government for funding the support there, but we don't do anything where we ask for forgiveness. Mm-hmm. We, well, well, we just do it. It's so true. We just do it. Yeah. So if there's anyone listening, know, if there's mm-hmm. anyone listening today, this is your permission has been given for you to solve whatever problem it is that you need to be solved. Shantia and I give you permission to think outside the box, <laughs> get creative, and solve some problems. Effective at 
What are your strengths, weaknesses, opportunity, and threats? And from there, you get the backhand view and the for- and the front view of what you need in order for you to start your your nonprofit. Once you have that go-to market strategy, then 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 go do it. Find your funding, and then and and launch it. But really consider, are you, before you even start your business, what are you doing? What is your mission? What values are driving you? And if it's self-seeking, it's, trust me, it's not going to last. So you have to be able to, to clearly have a heart to serve. Um, and, and, and again, once that heart, once you are, um, once you are at that point where you are burned out, consider a succession plan. We need to stop having these long-term executives and these positions and politicians and these positions where they occupy power and control over organizations for a long period of time. That has to end. So, you know, I think long and short of it is um, write your ideas down, do your market, do your market research, create a SWOT analysis, find your find where your funding is coming from. If you want to start a nonprofit. Look at your state nonprofit laws. Um, formulate your board, um, and then and really be a strong advocate for the community, and and really push it because we we really need to make sure that people who are doing this work actually have a heart to do the work. Um, because it, once and and recognize once that is once you're at a point where you are no longer invested, create a succession plan. Mm-hmm. And allow someone who is eager to do the work, allow them the opportunity to do it. I love it. That's, that's my that's my two cents. Yeah, <laughs> I love it. So many, so many little nuggets of insight. It's just so amazing. Thank you so much. Where can people find you and, and stay in contact and learn more about why social work? Yep, we are currently updating our website. So we will launch our website in two weeks during Socialist Month, so we're really excited about that. We will also cover some, um, we will also um, attend the um, United, uh, Social Work Day on the United Nations, so we're really excited about that. So learn more about why Social Work at whysocialwork.org. Awesome, what day is the United Nations event? March 21st, 23rd, excuse me, March 23rd. Okay, and where is that taking place at? New York City, um, at the United Nations. Um, and I don't have the website off, offhand, but if you search Social Day at the United Nations, um, it'll be there. Now we are doing all, so we're not affiliated at the United We are not affiliated with the organizing group or the committee. We just love United Nations, um, and a lot of the work that we're doing is global. Um, and so our partners, our international partners and, um, all work that we're doing with international partners fall line with the International Federation of Social Work, and so we support that event wholeheartedly. And we're going to just do some interns and I um, are going to attend and do some live video interviewing of social workers um, who are willing to tell their story why they are social workers. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Is there anything <laughs> else that we didn't cover for today? Um, no, this, is, this has been a great experience. My first podcast, so thank you for inviting me. Woo-hoo, another first-timer. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Chantia. Well, thank you so much. We'll talk soon. Talk soon. Bye-bye. Bye.
Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Social Workers Rise. If you loved it, write a review and give us five stars wherever you listen to your podcast. This just helps other people just like you find us and join our community. Also, I would love to connect with you on Instagram. You can find me at Social Workers Rise. I can't wait to see you next week. Bye.